There were stories from years ago, when the prison still lived by its name, of classes and education and work, of decent meals and a place to sleep, that gave you a second chance. The immaculate grounds, complete with an idyllic pond and lush greens, certainly gave a man a sense of hope. However, the beautiful castle-like structure had a much darker reality these days. If it didn't, he wouldn't have been walked through the booking process here. He knew what he had done deserved to be punished. But the last year in this place had gone beyond punishment and into torture. The guards marched him down the long hallway of the six-story east cell block. His grin was slightly crazed and still bloody from the fight he'd started. The cell block echoed with the sounds of hundreds of men packed into a space meant for a fraction of how many lived there now. What are you grinning for? You're heading for the hole. It made his grin take on a whole new level of crazed. No one wanted to spend time in the hole, but he wasn't going to be in the isolated darkness for long. No, he would be gone from this torture before the guards even remembered to bring him his evening gruel. Welcome back to A&A's Tall Tales. I'm Andrea. And I'm Amanda. And we're finally back. Oh my goodness, it feels good. It feels so good. It does. I'm going to apologize in advance for my messed up voice, though. I was going to say, I'm back. You're partially back. I know. I, you know, I keep hoping and waiting and doing all of the vitamin routines and healthy stuff to try to get my immune system to recover from the last couple of years. It's just not completely yeah. recuperating and cooperating. So I've been sick so much this year. I feel so bad. Hey, it's been better up until this. That is true. Apparently the whole fall and then just crazy couple of weeks caught up with me. So yeah, that would do it. <laughs> but that's okay. We're here, and we are finally bringing you guys the Ohio State Reformatory, also known yes. as the Mansfield Reformatory, and talk about a place that we have spent a ton of time. It's in my backyard. Yes. Not, not, not literally, but literally. close enough. Literally. Jinx. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've, <laughs> we've spent a lot of time there, and I'm kind of jonesing to go back, but I don't want to go while the haunted house is going because they block off so much of the reformatory. Yeah. It's been a long time since we ever did just like a, a tour. I know back in the spring we did the, um, the self-guided tour, but it's been a really long time, like maybe since high school when I worked as a tour guide out there for a little bit. I have never been on the guided tour, so I wouldn't know. Yeah, it's it can be fun. It, it helps if it's the right person, but I don't know if he's still out there. But at one point, there was a guy that spent time in the reformatory as an inmate that has been working as a tour guide. And this was a few years ago. So I, I don't know if he's still out there doing tours. That's really cool. Yeah, I thought so. Um, Where do we start with this place? There's so much history. I guess start with 1862. All right. Start with the beginning, Andrea, as always. I feel like you tell me this every time, but I just, my brain goes full ADHD mode and wants to like jump all over the place. Um, 
So the Ohio State Reformatory has a, a very interesting past. It actually wasn't originally known as the Ohio State Reformatory. It was it was originally called the Intermediate Penitentiary. And it didn't stick past the actual opening of the prison. I'm sorry, of the reformatory. It was quickly changed to the Ohio State Reformatory, or OSR. And this entire campus is built on around 40 acres on the field of what was originally a Civil War training camp named after Mordecai Bartley, who served as an Ohio governor back in the 1840s. So it has a, this ground has a long history of being a prison. The Camp Bartley was used as a political prison. So during the Civil War, the, the grounds were used to hold different kind of political prisoners, journalists, politicians, um, anybody that was spreading discontent or misinformation. And it was fairly relaxed at that time. It was more of a tent type structure than a brick and mortar type of structure. But in 1867, the city of Mansfield raised $10,000 to purchase the 30 acres of land for the OSR. It, at some point, um, they also bought an adjoining 150 acres for $20,000. And from 1867, the planning process and everything, it took until 1886 until they began the building of the actual intermediate penitentiary. It was, it is an enormous, impressive structure. It is. And only the actual cell block building remains. I've lived here my whole life, and I guess at the back of my mind, I did know that there were several other buildings. But what I didn't realize is there was an entire wall, city, stone wall, <laughs> built around this 30 or 40 acres where the initial, where the actual cell block, the schools, the factories, basically a city, houses for guards, everything. I, I did not realize that there was a huge wall there and that when the prison was decommissioned as a prison, that all of that stuff was demolished for the building of the current Mansfield Correctional Institution. What I have down is the facility itself back in the day was $1,326,769. To build. To build. Yeah. I didn't convert that. Um, I have just a general, like, add 33% to any of these numbers, and you get basically today's money. Mm -hmm. Um but the initial design was left to a man named Levi T. Schofield, and he was out of Cleveland, and he designed it using three different styles for all my architecture nerds, Victorian Gothic, Richardsonian Romanesque, and Queen Anne styles. It was designed to, when you first laid eyes upon it, uplift, inspire, and intimidate. So basically you looked at this thing and you're like, this is a castle. This is a church. I better behave myself. And it works even today. It works. It is, it is something when you turn that corner and just like full face on into it, it's ugh, super intimidating. And this is another one that you can see from route 30 going through Mansfield. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
for anybody that's listened to our AK Steel Cleveland Cliffs episode, and my brother had a run-in with the SWAT team coming through looking for prisoners, in the backyard of the Ohio State Reformatory is the current prison for Richland County Correctional Institute and the Mansfield prison, um, the Mansfield Chris, Ricky and Mansi. So, so just uh, when you go, please be on your best behavior. There are signs that say, do not do certain things in certain locations. Do not do those things because you will get in trouble, like severe trouble. So, Like you can't good. take pictures of a certain side of the building that faces the actual current maximum security prison. So, um, but you can see, you can see the Mansfield Reformatory from 30 and it is an amazing sight. And then when you turn that road turn down that road and it it just hits you hard mm-hmm. it, it's incredible to me that it's become such a well-known landmark because i grew up here and i remember from a very young age driving out past it and like 4-h age we used to go out to one of the local uh, group homes that you have to drive right past the reformatory so from the time i was very very young it's like what is that castle I always thought it was just a, a fairy tale type of castle and come to find out that it was a prison. And the really interesting thing, because what the aftertaste of the actual prison has so many horrible connotations right now. And I understand mm-hmm. why. So it was really cool to discover through all of this that initially the reformatory was built specifically to follow the reform model which it led to this whole model was built upon these inmates must go to school. They must go to work. They must go to church. They had to go out in the yard. They could set up and get their high school diplomas, college classes, work certifications. And it was built to help some of these, these men that were nonviolent first offenders acquire some life skills, get out of trouble and be able to go out into the world and thrive. And this whole model was set up in 18 month spans. So you could go in with an 18 month sentence, work on your high school diploma, build a skilled trade, save some money as you're working. And at the end of 18 months, they would evaluate your progress, your reform progress. And if they felt that you had reformed and were ready to step back out into society, you could go. And if you weren't, if you felt that you weren't, if they felt that you weren't ready, you would do another 18 month stint. And so these cells that we see now and all these awful pictures and the, the movies and things, they're tiny, but originally they were meant for one man to sleep in for eight to 10 hours a day. And that was it. The rest of the time they were at work, they were at church, they were at school, they were outside. Yeah, so that started basically day one. So Mm -hmm. the first stone was laid on November 4th, 1886. It was a stone that was quarried on a site a few miles away called the Devil's Punch Bowl, which I thought was cool. So it was a local (laughs) stone. And then a lot of things happened, uh, which will kind of... Do you want to get into the 1886 to 1896 gap now or? Yeah, might as well, because it, it took forever. It took over 20 years yeah. for this building to be completed, which is incredible to me. So what I have down is between 
1886 and 1889, uh, legislature refused appropriations. So basically, the government refused to pay for anything yes for this building they were like no the building is complete it is done it is whatever it is right now is what you have like we're not paying for anything else and it very much was not complete it was not at all so 1890 rolls around and the majority of the state basically said we need to turn this into an asylum at the time reform was not tested it was not proven it was brand new and everybody was like this isn't gonna work this needs to be an asylum this needs to be something else because this is not going to work we are tired of wasting money basically mm-hmm. so senator w.s kerr and representative c.m gomer donated fifty thousand dollars of their own money to see the project succeed after that, Gomer decided that the Mansfield citizens would pay for the entire legislative body to visit the New York State Reformatory. So just on a whim, he goes, you know, I think it'd be a good idea for us to go take a field trip to this other reformatory to convince everybody that to give us money, and the taxpayers are going to pay for that. Just so everybody knows that government has always been government. There's nothing new <laughs> under the sun. On their return trip, they appropriated $180,000. Mind you, the initial appropriation was only forty to 60000 So they doubled to tripled the amount of money that they gave them after this yeah. trip. And then it increased every year after that to a total of a million dollars. So the trip worked. The trip worked. You paid for it, but the trip worked. Yeah. And in 18... 18- 96, the first inmates were brought in, correct? Correct. And it was only 150 men, which sounds like a lot, but considering the size of this place, they were brought up from Columbus via a train, which I thought was kind of interesting. And they tasked these men with building the stone outer wall around the facility, as well as digging the sewer system. It's not they tasked them it's they got off the train they handed them shovels and said start digging exactly like i was saying earlier this this wall is not like your garden wall <laughs> it was it was known as the the 25 foot wall and it went around an enormous portion of the property we'll have pictures as usual the actual building itself was completed in 1910 from what i see and the construction was finalized in 1919. So it started, and I'm not sure what it means by finalized. I don't know if that's just when they were finally like, okay, we're done. We have all the buildings that we're going to do for right now, and we're calling it good. Because at that point, again, prisoners had been in there since 1896, but they continued to use them as free labor. So yeah, in 1891, is when the name was changed from the Intermediate Penitentiary to the Ohio State Reformatory. And I grew up hearing it always as the Mansfield Reformatory. That's what I know it as. But I now say OSR because it is so much easier. Yes, I mean, it is. But at the same time, I'm just so used to the Mansfield Reformatory that that's just kind of how it comes out. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll switch between all of the acronyms. No apologies. Keep up. 
We're talking about the same place. <laughs> I feel like everybody pretty much has a good basic understanding of this place anyway. But but yeah, so those first couple years, it was a reformatory, true and proper. Uh, but then 1930 rolled around. <sighs> and things and started to change. If anybody remembers... Way back, we talked about the Ohio State Penitentiary down in Columbus. And April 1930, that massive fire happened that killed a lot of people. Like 300 and some. The survivors of said fire had to go somewhere. The closest slash only other place that could house them was the reformatory. So they got shipped, smoky clothes and all, to the reformatory. And then reformatory overnight went from nonviolent, medium security, first time offenders, reform model to maximum security type prisoners showing up on their doorstep. And you have 1920, early 30s men, young boys who are first time offenders, you know, all I did was rob this candy store basically i know it wasn't that simple but basically some of it was and then you throw them in cells with people who this is my fifth murder conviction what do you think is going to happen <laughs> you have soft cute plushy and vicious bulldog soft cute plushy not gonna survive trust me even though bulldogs aren't vicious but that's another rant anyway moving on <laughs> and the other thing is the reform model worked there was an enormously low rate of recidivism like they didn't come back once they came they went through the reform process most of these men yet most of these boys went on to be contributing members of society and they were never seen by the, the prison systems again so you're talking people that are consciously working on getting themselves into a better position and then for very minor type of things and then like you said throwing hardened criminals in with them and if you remember from the ohio state penitentiary there was some question as to whether the inmates themselves had started that fire and then by 1930 or sorry by october of that same year um i found a worthington news journal article that said all the inmates from the Pen Ohio State Penitentiary had returned to Columbus. So they were only in there for like half a year. But look at what that. can change in six months. Yeah. And more than anything, what happened with the prison system, think back, what started in the 1920s? Prohibition. And so all of a sudden, you have people that went from having a drink and going to the pub, going to the bar after work. That's what they did. And then overnight, all of a sudden, they're getting thrown in prison for that. And the good old American spirit, you don't get to tell us what to do. Now we're just going to, we're going to do it even more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have all of these people that are being thrown in prison for prohibition issues and bootlegging and, and all of that good stuff. And on top of that, then rolls around the 1930s and we hit the Great Depression. And what happens when people are desperate? They do bad things. Oh, they do what they have to do to survive. And, that, that's probably more accurate. You know, and some of those things, not justifying it, but it's a little more understandable why you might steal a loaf of bread when you've got kids starving at home. 
But if you get caught, you're going to prison. So the entire prison system of the country, not just Ohio, but the country was increasingly overpopulated. Also look at what people do today, even still. And maybe I see it more with the kind of work I'm in, but, um, you go to prison, you have meals, a warm place to sleep, showers. It's better than dying on the streets in the cold. Mm -hmm. And there's a segment of people out there that even today, that's how they see it. Yeah. I mean, for the love of Pete today, prisoners get a tablet. Each prisoner gets a tablet in their cell. Like you can't even send them a letter, a paper letter. They have, they, you send them a letter even from, from their lawyer's office and they scan the letter to them and send it to their tablet in their cell. That's, I have all the feelings about that, but I will keep politics <laughs> out of it. Moving on. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's one of those things that it's, that has not changed so much, but the overcrowding and everything, they had this enormous building in Mansfield that they were using as a medium security, low security thing. Like there's stories all over the, some of the Mansfield history um, documents and such talking about how people used to go into the reformatory on the weekends to have lunch and school groups mm -hmm. went in and did school work and different volunteer programs and things in there. And it was just an amazing thing. So I don't know. Do we want to read a little bit of the, Oh, how much do you want to know? I have it all. <laughs> um, but I mean, so from, from local people talking on different Facebook posts and the Mansfield History Society and a couple of different resources that I got into, as late as the 60s, there were still locals that were going in to play basketball and baseball with the inmates. And like they would bet cigarettes with each other who was going to win. But it, this was a common practice. Like there would be, you see it in, in different movies even, but there would be a team of citizens that would come in and there would be a team of prisoners and they would play basketball, baseball, whatever. And it was an amazing thing to, to read about. Um, there was also a working farm. about it. Go for it. The sports. Do you want? Okay. Um, I'm so excited. I found, I know it was published by the Mansfield Reformatory, so 100% propaganda, but it is endlessly fascinating, and I found it, and I will definitely post a link because I may have geeked out a little bit. So <laughs> around 1925-ish, early like spring, O.F. Garver went to the superintendent and was like, hey, we should have some sports. And he goes, yeah, sure. So they previously basically just sticks in the yard, rags, bits of waste, whatever they could use as a ball and a bat. After they started sports, they allowed parents to send in bats, balls, gloves, any equipment they had at home. They were not allowed to buy new equipment and send that in. I don't know how they tell the difference, but whatever. It sounds like a technicality. Yeah. Uniforms and shoes were made from scraps in both the tailor and shoe shops. And there was a strict adherence to rules and regulations. So if you were 
a good person, a good Samaritan, a good prisoner who followed all the rules and did all the right things, you gotta play. And what happened was in the spring and summer, all these people were on their best behavior so they could have this time to play baseball. And they played like other minor leagues, other high schools, other colleges, like that sort of thing. Um, but what happened once baseball season was over was conduct kind of went south. So in the fall, they were like, you know what? Basketball. Basketball's a fall sport. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So I have a couple of different just clips from different people that live in Mansfield and actually experienced this then. And one man on here says back in the early 60s, they would allow outside basketball teams to come in and play for their team. We always played before a full house. Before the game, while we were dressing, a couple of trustees would come in and ask how good our team was. They would then go out and bet cigarettes with each other, either for or against with their fellow inmates. And a few different people then commented underneath this, this post. And one lady said, my husband played basketball there on the supermarket team. He said they never lost. He played them in softball too. And he loved those days. He said it was like playing any respectable and athletic team. They all had fun. This was in the 1960s. And it goes on to, um, to talk about a few other things that were not quite as, as pertinent, but it just, it's such an interesting concept. So another thing that happened is there was a lady that was talking about her stepfather worked as a guard out there in the late 1960s and the reformatory put on a regular dinner and talent show and it was a a white glove black tie affair and that she looked forward to this every year because it was a, a put on your your evening gowns and attire and go to the local castle for a talent show and and fancy dinner Aww. so it's it's an amazing thing i i just some of the postcards from the the hand-painted postcards from the reformatory in its heyday it's it looks like this enormous estate mm -hmm. not a prison <laughs> no and the interesting thing so this prison it seems like all of this stuff was so long ago right we're talking about the 1930s we're talking about 1880s but the prison ran only for 94 years in that time, 154,000 inmates, give or take a few, came through. And it did not close down until December 31st of 1990. So that's only 32 years ago. Yes, it is. <laughs> hey. <laughs> There's a lot of people that still, that are in their 50s, 40s and 50s, that worked out there or were incarcerated out there. This is not something like you have to go talk to your 100-year-old great-great-grandpa's buddy. This is something that, especially in this town, because this is one of the massive employers of the town, that you still can go sit at Coney Island in downtown Mansfield and bring it up and probably chat with somebody that worked out there still. Okay. Okay. Um. So I have... A whole lot about money. So first off, let's do... There were several different things people could do with their time at the reformatory. Uh, they could go to school. 
they could work in the livestock, they could work in the furniture shop, the clothing shop, the shoe shop, the printing press, or the machine shop. And I have all sorts of numbers about how much per year all these shops made. But a huge part of it was they had their own livestock and their own farming. So they produced a lot of their own food. And it just... Remember, this is almost 200 acres that this was built on. The produce and that was consumed and the amount they saved per year, at least this is in 1930s something, I think, um, they saved themselves $14,897 on vegetables, $2,065 on fruit, $55,017 on milk, $10,713 on meat, $1,353 on poultry, $9,184 on forage products, and an extra $700 on byproducts. Mind you, those are like 1930s money, so add 22% to all those numbers, but that's the amount they saved per year. So like this, this book was talking about, yeah, look at all the costs that it takes to keep us running, but compared to all the other prisons, we save so much money. Yeah. And it allowed them to do things like educate these people. And so even when things went from medium security, minimum security to maximum security, that did not officially happen until the 1960s, but it began in the 1930s with the penitentiary inmates coming up. And so when it went from a reformatory from the reform model to maximum security prison, they stopped requiring the schooling and the church and the work. They still offered it, but it was no longer required. And the Ohio State Reformatory actually was the first prison in the United States that had a chartered high school inside a prison. And there was a gentleman on one of the History Mansfield websites talking about how he taught math and science in, inside the prison at Fields High School from 1970 to 1974. And I thought that was really interesting. And during that time, again, they're still running the, the, the farming and everything. And apparently they were taking some of that, if I understood correctly what I was reading, they were taking some of that savings and continuing to roll it into the education and the running of the facility. Yeah. So I have, uh, I don't know if this is from 1930, whatever. I think it's 1934. I want to say it's 1934 or 35. Um, I have 1,626 people attended school. There were 16 teachers and one superintendent. It was a two-year program. Uh, there's a story of an inmate who came into the system. He was only able to speak like first grade English. And after 24 months, graduated with 10th grade level speaking ability. He studied seven hours a day in his cell, five hours a day in class, six days a week. That's amazing. They offered math, history, geography as core classes. Special classes included drafting, engineering, plumbing, steam fitting, mechanics, and welding. 25 out of the 27 people who took the state regulation test for engineering passed. 
Um, over the years, they added extracurriculars to make the schooling more attractive. So when it was no longer required and they were like, how do we get people to do this and try to better themselves? They added a debate team. They added a um, drama club. They added musical programs, different sports, that sort of thing. Which is incredible. And I mean, they still, the entire place is spectacular and they, they really... They started out with the best of intentions. They did, and that's what makes it so tragic. Is they tried. They tried, and they succeeded, but... That's the thing. They succeeded for so long. I mean, for almost half, if not a little more, of the life of the the reformatory, they succeeded. I mean, to the point where... Now, remember, at this time, people didn't carry around a supercomputer in their pocket, there wasn't access to a phone most of the time. If staff did not live on site, they couldn't get there quickly or even hear news of what was going on if they didn't live on site or close to it. So it was common practice across the country at the time for wardens and superintendents, which is kind of interchangeable in some ways, um, to live on the premises. Guards often lived on the premises or there's actually several roads of houses across the street from the reformatory where guards lived and could rent. So, I mean, to the point where the wardens, one specifically that we'll talk about in a little bit, raised families within this building. So not only were they, they very, very successful with the reform model of everything, but it was such a secure and such a low conflict place, especially at the beginning that the warden raised children in here. I do want to say that low conflict does not mean no conflict, just so we're right. not like all roses and ice cream. Right. This is still, a, it was still a prison, even when it was a reformatory. Yes. It wasn't like a boarding school. It was, but it, it just, and I'm saying this having grown up walking through this place multiple times a year. So, and then all of the the changes happened. Yeah. So. I'm sorry. I did not mean to interrupt your facts. You're fine. Continue. That's fine. I, I'm i kind of over, I think, for now. I have, like, the intake process, the court of appeals, how they determine parole. <laughs> Tiny <laughs> bit geeking out. I geeked out a lot. I even went so far as to write down how they knew where the inmates were in their facility it's a system that they have like the inmate number and little cards on hooks and they put the hooks on like the cell number so you have your inmate x in cell y and that's where the card is so that's where that inmate is anyway that is awesome but superintendent arthur lewis glatke is yes awesome dude i love him very very much he is something uh, everyone else did too, because he is like, if, if you look up the OSR, it, he is the superintendent people talk about. He reigned, I guess, from 1935 to 1959. 24 years. Oh, that's so long. It is. And he, he also was in charge during the transition period from the min- minimum security to maximum security. And by most accounts, he handled it extremely well. He lived and breathed 
his job. Which, like, came out, people loved him. I'm sure there were some enemies, but, like, for the most part, inmates yeah. and staff adored this man. Um, unfortunately, the only thing I have down is he implemented several reforms, like piping in radio music into the cell blocks. Like, that's, yes. that's all I have down. Oh, boy. I, I, I have a whole... More couple of pages of this oh so please take it away on mr glacky so he began his his reign as you said in 1935 as a young man who he came in in 1935 so the as the penitentiary stuff had already happened and and gone in and out and started to see the state be like, oh, you have all this room up here and you were able to take these guys then so you can still take some of them now. And he implemented things part of the um, softball, baseball, basketball that we were talking about were things that he helped to implement. The piping classical, calming classical music throughout the cell blocks, which we haven't even really talked about, but to this day... OSR is their east cell block is the largest freestanding cell block on record world record it's six stories high and it's we have some really cool pictures of it which they're not hard to find you can look it up too and so this one cell block of which there's two different wings just the east cell block held several hundred men and this is actually the piping of music throughout the the cell blocks is something that's actually included in one of the famous movies that was for, that was filmed out of the reformatory and in the scene where one of the prisoners breaks in in the movie breaks into the warden's office to play music into the cells they actually do that from warden gladkey's office in real life and use the system that he actually implemented which I thought and, was really cool. And bonus points if you can name that movie in three, two, one. <laughs> the Shawshank Redemption. Yay! I love that movie. It's I think yeah, it's my number one. I'm you're sure. you're gonna shoot me. You've never seen it. <laughs> no. <laughs> <I haven't>. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, Andrea, I know what we're doing Sunday. Oh my god, I'm coming up. We're cleaning stalls and we're watching Shawshank Redemption. That sounds amazing because Robert and I were talking about it and then life just was like, oh, hey, you have to get three weeks worth of work done in two days. And we didn't get to watch it before he had to go back to work. So I um, have the DVD. As long as you can play DVDs, we can watch it. (laughs) We can eat ponchos and watch Shawshank. Don't know. I don't I don't have a DVD player on my computer. (gasps) I don't know if mine has one either. I think my old computer has one. I'll bring my old computer. I'm pretty sure it has one. Okay, I think I, I think I, oh, maybe not. I think maybe I have his old computer, too, that has a, I'll have to ask him, but he's in the air right now, so. Anyway, yes, I fully intended to watch Shawshank before actually filming, or filming. I'm so flustered right now, because I feel like everybody's going to be like, you idiot, why haven't you ever seen this? You live in this town. You know where all the stuff is. Um, (laughs) I fully intended to watch this movie before we started recording and I didn't do it. Yeah. Well, things happened like rather quickly and it was kind of shocking. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. To be fair, I am working on being sick for the last four or five days and getting like four to six hours of sleep a night closer to the four end for the last six or seven nights. And it's been incredible. Like I haven't even been to work all week because it's been awful. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. So Shawshank Redemption was filmed out here and the scene in the movie that I have no business talking about because I've never seen it where <laughs> they break in and pipe music into the cell blocks is actually from Warden Gladkey's office. And that is something that he is renowned for implementing and the inmates loved it. Mm-hmm. So he, he had to handle all of the overcrowding and managed to, he started to add second beds to these cells because remember these cells, and I don't know who all has been out there. Now, the east block cells are smaller than the west block cells. Not by a ton, but enough. They're only like 8 by 4. So, they're they're tiny. They might be 5 by 10, maybe. Um, they were meant for one man to sleep in. That was it. And during Gladkey's reign, because of overcrowding, because of, of prohibition, because of the Great Depression, because of starting to funnel maximum security prisoners in he started to add second beds to the cells so that these men when they got two and three men per cell were not sleeping on the floors and actually had somewhere to tuck themselves and sleep um he like we were talking about earlier he lived in the reformatory there is a warden's quarters in the actual building and when he moved in he was a single man and in 1950, oh, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not when that happened, actually. Cut that out. <laughs> but when he, he moved in, he was a single man and he starts to become well-known throughout the community. And he, while living in the prison, met a woman named Helen. And I didn't write it down, but if I remember correctly, they met at some sort of fancy state dinner. Yeah. And it was pretty much that was that he made up his mind then and there and pursued her. And they did get married and she moved into the warden's quarters in the facility where they had two boys that they raised in the prison. And unfortunately their bliss did not last forever, which it never does. But this is particularly tragic in November, early November of 1950, Helen, they were getting ready at different sources that I read, um, which I'm going to go with this because it was mentioned again on several of the, the local archives, history archives. She was getting ready for church for a church hey, event. I was going to say, hang on. I have the newspaper clipping somewhere. You're awesome. Because I'm a, a dork like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, open the thing. Open it. Computer. Okay, I well, have to find it because I have several. Okay, you keep looking, but... Okay. Um, and I'll tell you what I found from different locals that were alive at that point and reminiscing and um, uh, f doing the time capsule stuff on the, the One Mansfield Archive. Um, so it was said that she was getting ready for a church event, whether it was Sunday morning church, whether it was something that the church was, was holding... She was getting dressed and the closets in the warden's quarters are enormous. They're tall, they're deep, they're narrow. 
and she reached up for a hat box on top of one of the shelves within that closet, not realizing that her husband's loaded revolver was tucked in a box on top of her hats and the metal box containing the loaded handgun fell when she pulled the the hat box off of the the stack and when the gun hit the floor it discharged and it shot her now originally initially she did survive they rushed her to the mansfield hospital where she was treated for her wounds and she lived for several days and unfortunately contracted pneumonia in conjunction to her wounds and died. So this was in 1950 and Arthur Gladkey, um, Warden Gladkey, he continued to faithfully do his job for another nine years. He, he threw himself into his job and on February 10th of 1959, he was found slumped over his desk where he had suffered a heart attack and they were again they rushed him to the hospital and he did not survive the heart attack so he his his reign of 24 years would have continued but his heart could not take it the news clipping i have is from november 8th 1950 it said miss glatke was reported by her family and physicians to be the victim of an accident which occurred about 10 15 a.m sunday while she was dressing for church. She reportedly reached onto a high shelf for a safe closet in a safe closet for her jewelry box and moved a 32 caliber pistol beside it. In doing so, the pistol slipped from her grasp, discharged as it fell and hit the floor. Miss Gladkey suffered a wound to the upper left chest, the bullet penetrating her lung. Oh, that's almost word for word what several of the different people had reported on the, the one archive. So. Yeah. But they both unfortunately died. Um, Arthur Glackey did die in the reformatory. Helen did not. Uh, but they both supposedly, unsupposedly, haunt are, are two of the ghosts you can meet yeah. while you're there. Well, and quick, quick side note that I found very interesting, especially in that time period of 1950, there was some question whether Arthur had shot Helen initially and his, their love was so open that it was quickly put to rest any suspicions, which I found just another testament of his character, their character. Yeah. But yes, they are apparently some of the spirits that stay at the reformatory. Uh, I have the administration area, including the bathroom, voices, cold spots, the smell of perfume, and electronic malfunctions. Yeah. Helen was known for her rose perfume, and there's a lot of people that report scents of her her perfume in her bathroom area, in her, her dressing room area, and as well as cold spots and orbs. Yeah. Which, strangely enough, as many times as we've been out there... There's been very rarely anything that even feels super off to me. Every now and then. The last time we were there, not so much. But the time before that where I went for a tour with mom, it was... There was a room that I just, like, I couldn't walk in. 
Because I'm like, no, whatever's in there doesn't want me there. I can't do it. And then the lady behind us just breezes white in. And I'm like, it doesn't want you in there. Please leave. <laughs> I feel like you and your mom get in lots of trouble with this stuff. We do. So in some ways, Warden Gladkey dying in 1959 may have kept him from seeing his beloved prison become what it's known for now. Yes. And By 1980, um, conditions had, and I'm sure you have all the information on this one, um, conditions had deteriorated so much, the inmates band together and sued the state. Yes. Hold on. Let me get to that. Okay. So let, let's talk a little bit about some of these conditions that would lead to inmates in a prison suing the state. Yes, please. Because they are... Context. Astounding. Yes. This was not like today's whole, oh, I got handed a hot coffee and it was so hot it burned me. Oh no, how did that happen? Um, This was stuff like starting somewhere in the 1960s, punishments began to be implemented, including things called the butterfly and the hole. And the butterfly was a method of punishment where they used different water tubes and electrostimulus to create a basically sweat box type of setup until inmates didn't want to be there anymore. And that is something that I hadn't really heard about until I found it on, like, mentioned in one sentence on one of these websites that I was like, nah, this doesn't seem super credible. And then again, I went through some of the Mansfield archives and history. Um, I need to actually look up what that's called because I, I keep saying it. And I don't actually remember what the, the project's called, but it, it's something like the Mansfield History Project. And sure enough... There was a couple of reports of stories from guards that proceeded over and resided over some of the the setup for these processes. And I'm like, they don't talk about that out there during these tours and things. That's not something that I've seen a lot of it mentioned. And I'm wondering if it's because it, it, it that's from what I understood, horrible. It was very horrible and it caused several deaths. So it wasn't something that was done for very long. It had a a high um, death rate. (laughs) So now the other thing, which we know well, it's Amanda's favorite place out there. I say that with all the sarcasm as solitary Uh, confinement. Mm, There you go. (laughs) Also known as the hole. This place is yucky. I don't. (laughs) don't like it just thinking about it it's making my stomach like no so it's a set of solitary cells set up in the basement underground in complete darkness like cannot see your hands touching your nose in front of your face darkness yeah and even when we go through tours out there now you can hear um like rodents and things and they have lights down there during the tours but um they don't work fantastically if i'm remembering correctly and so there was 20 whole compartments and they're tiny cells they were designed to be torturous and during that span from the 60s into the 90s into the late 80s in 1990 um 
they would put men in there. And again, these cells were designed for one man at a time for like a couple hours. And they quickly turned into throwing multiple men in there, especially after the prison riot, throwing multiple men in there and basically forgetting that they were there, including not feeding them for several days at a time. And there were reports at one point of men being put into these cells and left down there for over a month. And the psychosis after that yeah, was high. I, yeah, just a little bit. So these punishments weren't the only forms of torture that these men were enduring. There was the other convicts, the dangerous convicts. The guards were not very cognizant of putting like you were saying earlier, a 15 year old boy that stole a couple of pieces of candy or a loaf of bread in with a hardened criminal that was on his, you know, five or six murder spree. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that they started to put up rails, like fencing to where you couldn't jump over the rail on these six story high cell blocks. And it was not go that long. It was not, yeah, it was not until the 1970s and it was not until men were on a semi-regular basis getting thrown over or jumping over the rails to escape the torture. There was bad food that was going on. They were not fed regularly and what they were fed was rotten, was no nutrition. And surprise, surprise, these kinds of conditions bred transmittable diseases the the hospital wing in here had its entire own tb ward tuberculosis ward and i did not actually get my grandma talking about this which was strange because she's impossible to stop talking once she gets going on stuff but it's also like trying to steer a runaway train and yeah and i say that i say that in the most loving manner but there was other things that she had to talk about that day. And we were not talking about the TB ward at the Mansfield Reformatory. But we want to talk um, about the TB ward at the Reformatory. I, I'm like, I, I do remember going on ice cream dates when, when I was three and being mad at my mom. But about the Reformatory. And she's like, <laughs> she was stuck on ice cream. And I can't blame her. I mean, I come by it honestly. So, but there, there were times growing up that she would talk about, she was a nurse and she would talk about doing rotations out there in the TB ward while it was still a working prison back in the fifties and sixties. And it wasn't something that she really enjoyed talking about. So I can't really blame her for not wanting to go into detail now, especially with the current situation. And they're in, my grandparents are in their nineties. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah. And then there was also the rat plague that went through and that just makes my skin crawl thinking about it. Yeah. But the conditions out there continued to get worse and worse and worse until finally in the case Boyd versus Denton, the inmates banded together and the, they hired the council for human dignity who filed a federal complaint in 1978 by the mid 1980s so this took six to eight years to go through the whole process of the court and these conditions kept getting worse and worse the overcrowding kept getting more and more as the court is going through its rigmarole and 
by the mid-1980s, the federal court mandated the shutdown of the facility by 1986. And so it took them forever to make up their mind. But once they did, they're like, this is done by next year. The Except lawsuit, it wasn't. <laughs> right. When is it ever? The lawsuit alleged the conditions at the prison were merciless and abusing. And that just seems like such pitiful words for what was actually happening. Yeah. So at that time, 1986, with that ruling, the Mansfield Correctional Institute, better known locally as Mansi, was being built to take over the housing of the reformatory inmates. However, surprise, surprise, construction delays caused OSR to remain open until December 31st of 1990. So more than four years of delays. Yeah. And from 1990, from New Year's Eve 1990, the prison stood empty and abandoned for five years. But and just, I, like, I, at this point, I have to pause and say, if you are able to right now, go look at the pictures, any pictures, not necessarily ours even, of the reformatory and the state it is in and realize it was only abandoned for five years. Like, no building should deteriorate that rapidly in five years. So, like, that has to give you some inkling of how bad it was. Like, it boggles my mind. Right. It is... And the thing was, part of the the deterioration is these cell blocks were built to house a maximum of 1,600 people. Fourteen to 1,600 was the maximum capacity for the Mansfield Reformatory. And at its height, at its most packed, it housed 35 to 3,800 people. That's so overcrowded. So you're talking, cell again, cells and facilities that were made to house, at the maximum, 1,600 people. At its minimum of the overcrowding, housed double that. Yeah. More than double that. Like, so, I'm sitting in a closet that's about the size of one of those cells and I couldn't imagine like four other people in here with me <laughs> four other people for 22 to 23 hours at a time yeah no I and probably murder someone which did happen by the way it did happen I mean there's all sorts of stories of um there's a famous one of a man setting himself on fire I there's... have that news article yeah I mean there's different talks of the um, throwing themselves off of the the balconies of after the, the prison riot. Do you have anything on the riot? I do, actually. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because okay. that ended up with some interesting things happening in the hole. So the news journal from June 13th of 1930, it is quell riots among OSR inmates here. And it is a group of 1,700 convicts became unruly late Thursday. Police and sheriff's deputy of how joined many? guards. 1,700. Holy smokes. Uh, join guards in riot. So it is a very long article. I'm not going to read all of it. Um, but basically, they were in the dining hall for Big Supper, which was basically when the majority of people ate. And it was on a Thursday. 
1,700 prisoners were fed at the time and became unruly. They overturned tables and stools and flung them into the air. Yeah, basically they just revolted until the guards stepped in. In the 1930s, 1930 is not when things were horrible out there. But that is when the Ohio Penn guys were out there. Yes. So, and this is June, so they would have been there because they were April to October. So it said, although the rioting started sometime before Big Supper, among the 266 penitentiary inmates who were quartered here, the bulk of disturbances was caused by the reformatory prisoners. So that explained it. Even though there were penitentiary inmates, it was the reformatory prisoners who started. It doesn't go into why they started it, or it might. Once again, it's a very long article. It will be posted on the website. Read it for yourself. I'm assuming it's because they were suddenly overcrowded by an extra 266 people. Right. So they turned the tables. They were forced to club several inmates to restore order. Um, when they were finally able to march them back to their cells, a group of eight inmates were taken from their cells to the correction or solitary confinement cell blocks, where now more than 30 inmates were quartered. In 20 tiny cells. 20 cells over 30 inmates. So that's, I mean, these cells are tiny. Guards were forced to club several of the inmates who maintained an attitude of indifference when they were taken to their cells. But yeah, so it, it, basically isn't um as bad as the rumors say it was assuming it's talking about the same riot because the stuff i have on the riot was like oh you know 300 prisoners were thrown in solitary confinement and oh yeah here it is 100 to 120 inmates were sentenced to solitary for rioting for 30 days and Like, unless it's a different riot, I couldn't find. That's not at all true. Which, it wouldn't surprise me if there was more, honestly. It it really wouldn't, because I have two dates. I have 1930, and I also have 1957. So, multiple riots would not surprise me. And 1957 was in the middle of the... At the beginning of the maximum security transition. It was. I have that there are... The rumors you will hear are of two men walking into a cell. 30 days later, one man walking out with the second man stuffed under his mattress. Yeah. And that's not the only death that happened in solitary. I don't have any proof of that, but I can I can pretty much bet on, on that. Yeah, there was... I found a couple of different, again, mentions that there was different times that there was a man that managed to somehow hang himself in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And then from then on out, the rest of the prisoners weren't even allowed bedsheets down there or their thin blankets that they had had. There was a couple of other mentions that just, I don't even want to think about. So (laughs) that being said, through all of this, there's only 215 ish known deaths at the reformatory over 94 years which doesn't seem right to me i feel like there should be more but yeah but see then we also have stuff like the i have i have a really interesting article from the abandoned mansfield page that um it's extremely long i don't want to read it word for word but talking about the mad dog killers 
Oh, yeah. I have those articles as well. Yeah. So, and included some of the local takes on what happened. And I thought it was super interesting. Um, not, not in a good way. Yeah. But, again, this was before the the worst of the maximum security stuff started. So, as we were talking about with the the working farm, there was an overseer to the farm. And, unfortunately, in 1948, on Fleming Falls Road, which is across from the reformatory, I actually have friends that live on it, there, there was a tragedy that happened. The Nebels... Is that how you would say that? Yeah, I think it's Nebel. I think it's Nebel. The the Nebel story was gruesome, horrific. I think those are good good ways to describe it. Yeah. So to set the scene a little bit, the why does this say nineteen forty eight up here? Uh, ah, because it happened in nineteen forty six. No, nineteen forty eight. Oh. I'm picking up what my notes are putting down now. I'm sorry. My brain is scrambled. It's okay. So in 1948, the Nebels family was part of a killing spree that was conducted over the course of two weeks by a couple of reformatory escapees. They were called the Mad Dog Killers. And some of what they did included armed robberies, carjackings, murders it was covered for that two weeks in the daily press and radio around not only the state of ohio but the nation and it cast a shadow over richland county and bad shadow yeah and it, it put the entire city the entire county the region into shock especially the way that things were found and there is a field that there was some, a Boy Scout troop <laughs> was out walking through. They were doing some sort of, I'm, I'm sorry, I guess it wasn't necessarily a Boy Scout troop, but it was a troop of boys that were hiking from a church camp. And they were out towards the field and the field is capitalized like this is the name of this place. And the leader of this troop happened to spot some dead bodies in the corn. And he ushered the boys out of there and called the police. And it was surrounded immediately by sheriffs and cruisers. The coroner showed up, ambulances, reporters, spectators, all of the stuff. And this is out on a back dirt road, by the way. Even today, this place is, this area around it is largely farm fields. And they, I, I don't even know how to put this without it being just, gruesome but they they found the bodies of the head the farm head yeah and his his wife and children his wife and daughter daughter yeah he had two surviving sons um yeah it's i don't have the actual article that talks about the specifics of everything but from what i remember basically um the mad dog killers broke into their house made force them to walk i think force them to strip down naked force them to walk out in the field and basically murdered them execution style yeah yeah not great um 
It's kind of sad. There's a part in this article that says Phyllis, who was the daughter, had her golden red hair still in pin curls when her body was discovered. Yeah. Yeah. So, not great. Um, but their ghosts are also said to haunt the area. So, in conjunction to this... There's a story from a former police officer that compiled all of this information about the Mad Dog Killers and that they were actually looking to continue their spree onto a guard who they claim brutalized them at the, the reformatory. They wanted to kill this man. His name was Willis Harris, also known as Red, and he resigned from his post back in the early 1940s he had shot a paroled man and he was incapacitated (laughs) and went to the ohio reform i'm sorry the ohio penitentiary for the shooting so he didn't kill the guy he lived but there were some things that forced him out of his duty and then he was rehired as a guard at the reformatory after his stint at the penitentiary for shooting a paroled man and this he i don't know how he survived because it was said that this this guard was potentially the actual target of the mad dog killers and when they couldn't get to him they went after the nebel family and ironically enough mr harris was a pallbearer for mr nebel's funeral Uh yeah and then after all this was over after the funerals were over Red Harris moved into the same house that the Nebels had lived in, which I thought was extremely strange. Yeah. And so the incident with the the Nebels was on July 21st of 1948. And then on July 24th of 1950, so almost exactly two years later, an inmate on the honor system assaulted and tied up Red's wife at their home, put her into the garage, and then escaped for five or six hours. (laughs) yeah and the reason that he tied up his wife and put her in the garage is because red was not home he was there to kill mr harris but couldn't bring himself to kill kill his wife and i just find that very interesting that these these men were there according to an officer that handled the case to kill this this harris this guard and when they couldn't find him because he was in the penitentiary for shooting a paroled man which just doesn't look good on his character and then later two years later there was another prisoner that wanted to kill him like he just doesn't seem like the best kind of guy yeah i have questions about how he treated people but yeah uh there is a book it's called the mansfield killings uh by scott fields it goes over all of that i haven't read it but it is on the list of things to to read so all the things all the things so there's a brief <laughs> overview of the prison as a prison mm-hmm. and all of these tragedies happened all of these changes and growth and differences and what started out as a highly successful reformatory ended as a derelict awful crime against humanity and then it was left abandoned for five years until the film crew for shawshank redemption stopped the demolition of the building they'd already demoed all of the outbuildings and the wall 
to make room for Mansi for the new prison. But the film crew for Shawshank Redemption stopped the demolition of the building as it stands now because they wanted to film their movie there. Mm-hmm. And in the process of the filming of the movie, the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society was formed, a nonprofit which is overseen by a volunteer board. And their entire purpose was to preserve, it's right in their name, to preserve this building. And by the time that the filming was done with Shawshank Redemption, they were able to convince the state of Ohio to sell them the building for $1. Yay! And that is why we have this building still standing to explore now. Yes. They fund the stabilization and restoration of the building through donations. Um, There are several tour fees. There's self-guided. There's a ghost tour. There's several ghost hunts. Um, There's apparently specifically like an inmate tour that you can take. Um, Like Andrea was talking about, previous inmates give tours. The Haunted Prison, which is going on right now, you can rent it for events. There's weddings, conventions, there's incarceration. You know, the giant three-day, all the famous bands. Giant three-day, get a tattoo and see your favorite rock band. Which you can hear from the house when it's going on for three Mm -hmm. days. Yeah. Um, Which is awesome, don't get me wrong. They also offer ghost hunting classes, which is kind of funny. They have, they hold the annual Paris Icon. They still run to this day historical baseball and softball leagues, which I think is really cool. Hmm. You can rent it out for your event, for your wedding, for whatever you might want to do, which apparently that's a thing. People get married out there. I mean, it Um, was on the list, but I feel like Kyle (laughs) might have said no, or I never brought it up seriously to him, but it was on the list anyway. But then your brother would have had to have gone with us. Well, he has to go at some point because his girlfriend wants to go so once again we have to wait till till the uh haunted house is over that's fair okay we can do that and and on top of being such a cool place to go and explore and learn and this building and its history has been on every ghost show out there it's it's extremely well known, partially because of Shawshank Redemption, but... I have an entire list, and it's not even complete, but there's so many things. So, I literally have almost every haunted or ghost hunting show in existence has done an episode here. Shawshank Redemption was 1994, so between when it was abandoned and purchased by the Preservation Society. Harry and Walter go to New York was 1975 and i think that was actually filmed inside the prison while it was running while it was running while it was an active prison Mm -hmm. tango and cash from 1989 again while it's an active prison while it's an active prison marilyn manson did a promotional shoot in 1996 um air force one was shot there parts of it were shot there in 1997 Godsmack, Awake video in 2000, Little Wayne, Go DJ video in 2004. Which, which, Little Wayne had an entire cell painted gold and it's still out there. It is. For that video. 
Fallen Angels, 2007, uh, Judgment Day, WWE promotion, 2008, Miss May I, Relentless Chaos video. It, it goes on and on. This place is like, if, if you like it, it's probably been in something. This place yeah. is amazing. When you see the pictures of the front of it and everything, it's it's well known. It just not everybody realizes that it was a working prison with such a horrific past. The one of the bits of information I think it was from the Preservation Society was the prisoners were so eager to leave that the day they left, they just re- left their belongings. So like some of the belongings in their cells are actually prisoner belongings and they just left them there because they're like we don't care we just want to get out of here yeah and when the building was abandoned when they moved everybody to the new facility half of the quote artifacts that they have at the museum now within the reformatory which there's also a really cool museum we have tons of pictures from our ventures Mm -hmm. out there but half of the quote artifacts that they have out there are just simply they found them lying around because when they closed down the building they just dropped things where they stood and walked out yeah they're like nope screw it not worth it bye so yeah uh there are a couple ghost stories we didn't get to if we want to go for it so i think you mentioned it a little bit um but cell 13 and mr james lockhart wait i thought it was cell 14 cell 13 oh okay at least that's what i have I don't have it specifically in the newspaper, but I have cell 13. So either cell 13 or cell 14. Um, James Lockhart was an inmate at the OSR. He took some, where is it? Uh, Lighter fluid, sprinkled it on his clothing, set himself on fire, and then ran to the back of his cell so no one could save him. He haunts whatever, either cell 13 or 14, whichever one he did that in. So that's fun. It's not fun, you guys. No. There is the chair room, which there's not a whole lot of specific information, but basically it's a single room without windows that's an interior room. There is a chair sitting in it, and if you move it, it will move itself or be moved by a ghost back to its spot. Uh, if you sit in the chair, you'll get touched or scratched. It can be heard, like, scraping on the floor when nobody's in there. That's spooky. I think when we went, there was, like, a family and there was a little kid sitting in the chair. I'm like, I don't want to take a picture of a little kid. <laughs> That's just weird. Okay. Yeah, I do remember that. Um, supposedly in the basement, there was a 14-year-old boy who was beaten to death. Um, <laughs> and there's also the ghost of a not-nice guard down there i did see reports that the basement even when it was in operation nobody wanted to go down there everybody was like no this place is haunted we don't want to go down here and i think as like one of the hazing rituals they would take statues and stuff and place them like just around the corner to scare new guards they'd like make them go down there alone and then haze them i thought it yeah. was funny also mind you that the hole, the solitary confinement, is located in the basement. Yeah. So. And then I have the two more named murders. The first was November 2nd, 1926. A paroled inmate returned to OSR and shot Urban Wolford. 
who was a guard. I have the article for that if you want to read it. Basically that's all there is to it is he returned, shot the dude for perceived slights, and yeah. Apparently Urban Wolford uh, haunts the area he was shot. On October 2nd, 1932, a man named Frank Hanger was beaten to death with an iron bar trying to stop 12 inmates from escaping. Mm. And he also haunts the area in which he was killed. I believe I have that news article as well. Of course you do. Yeah. So that's all I have as far as like specific. There are probably a lot more, but that's all I wrote down because I was on page seven of notes and was so <laughs> done. Yeah, the only things that I have is in the library. It's been stated that there's a young woman that's been seen and nobody's a hundred percent sure if it's perhaps Helen Gladkey. Um, it could also be a nurse that was apparently murdered by the criminals in the infirmatory in the infirmary i give up i can't even talk my my brain is starting to go to sleep you. we're almost done it's 9 30 we've been at this for almost, almost two, two hours, hours now. and <laughs> i did like 10 minutes of that as you like getting resituated but I, I literally got four hours of sleep last night i know we'll wrap it up real quick yeah um the infirmary <laughs> The infirmary is another hot spot for ghosts, and that's kind of a duh thing in my mind. Yeah. Be- because there was reportedly on almost every source that we've looked into, no care of men who were basically starved by other inmates stealing their food um, that died there that had different transmittable diseases that were just kind of left to stew in their disease and die. And it's a hot spot. And apparently at one point the, there was a, a prisoner that actually killed a nurse and that is some of where the uh, lack of care started to become a problem. Yeah. Kind of, you know, bite the hand that feeds you type of deal. And then I thought it was interesting that somewhere in the prisoner's chambers, which I'm not 100% sure if that means the cells, um, or if there's another area that's specifically called the prisoner's chambers, but it was mentioned a few different times on different sources. So uh, if you figure it out, let us know that when there were still inmates at the Mansfield Reformatory, some of them would sense a woman pull their blankets up around them and tuck them in. In, in like a soothing way at night so ended on a halfway decent note <laughs> yeah I mean this place is super haunted in my opinion go visit it's even if you don't like ghosts it's an amazing piece of architecture it's an amazing piece of history it's just amazing the museum alone is worth going and seeing it's all sorts of different industry in history of the different businesses and factories and what built the city and our nation. And there's, it's incredible. It's still under construction when we were there in April and I would love to go back. It was, it was beautiful. Yeah. They had a lot of cool, like old timey washing machines and dishwashers and some like go-karts and just, different tools and stuff to repair grist mills it it was so cool 
everything from the Westinghouse, from the steel mills, from the grist mills, from the railroads. It was extremely interesting. Highly recommended. Agreed. So that's just a little bonus you get when you go. It's called the North Central Ohio Industrial Museum. Now, we know, since this place is so well known, there's got to be some stories that y'all have. Let us know. We'd love to hear them. Please. Please, 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 please. <laughs> Amanda is desperate. Somebody give Amanda her, her Halloween October spooky please. story. Please, please. Um, you can get us on our Facebook. You can get us on Instagram. Uh, email our website get a hold of us even if it's just to say hi we love hearing from you guys makes our days yes it does and with that oh crap what are we time. doing next miss amanda oh my god um <laughs> i have been so focused on researching this and so excited and so like I, uh, it's a surprise, you guys. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, half of the time that, uh, we spent on hiatus, I spent worrying about Andrea and her health and her situation, but it's all good. It's fine. Everything's fine, you guys. I'm okay. We survived. It's great. Uh, I don't even have a fever anymore, so. Yeah, just, just coughs that linger forever and ever and ever and ever. Which, I mean, isn't that our new normal? Yeah, basically. So. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of cool extra stuff as far as things we've found, articles, pictures. Please look on the website. It'll all be there. It's so cool. It's going to have its own page. Um, We hope you guys enjoyed this one. It's an extra long one. Uh, Hope it makes up for being on hiatus for two weeks. But anyway, we will see you guys next time. We will see y'all next time. This has been A&A Tall Tales, an independently written, recorded, and produced podcast. Our intro sounds are Crackling Fireplace by Julius H. and Nightwoods by Widget Studios. Our intro song is Harmonica Solo by Julius H. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.